the Oscar goes and to... And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to... Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Could have been a contender. Fasten your seat. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Oh, really? Love is his ass. Love. Too weak a word. Stay back. I know you. I know you. I love you. I did as you said. Don't lie! If there's something wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV! Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me? It's time, Robbie! Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. Moonlight, Best Picture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. Yay! I am your host, Matt Neglia, and joining me for this episode today, Wakey Wakey, it is Kristen Lopez. Hello, everybody. 7 o'clock in the morning, am I right? Yep. I'm usually up at 6.30, though, so I'm always awake at this time. She's high in spirits today, ladies and gentlemen. And also joining us is Michael Schwartz. Hello, everybody. How's it going? I think they just said it's going okay. They say okay for a specific reason, and that is because audiences are really, really, really upset with... um, Hollywood executives mismarketing their films. Uh, what is the fucking deal? Could somebody tell me with audiences' reactions to quote unquote high art horror films? Can anybody help me with this one? Because It Comes at Night came out this weekend. It is phenomenally well made. Uh, Josh Williams and I raved about it this weekend, as did so many others. Got a high 80s critical approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but like a 49% audience score and a D minus cinema score from audiences. And this happened uh, with The Witch. This has happened also with other horror films like It Follows, The Babadook. Like, I, I refuse to accept that that, you know, how audiences perceive not just horror films, but movies in general in today's day and age with um, critical ratings of Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm just supposed to accept that, lie down. Um, you know, I, and I'm sorry, guys, I know I'm on my soapbox right now, but uh, cinema has changed my life, made it better, and yes, I'm going to go there and even say it has even saved it in the past. Like, movies mean so much to me. Um, and, and so th- that sharing of artistic expression... Um, is something that I cherish and behold so dearly. And if audiences are going to continue to act this way, and the Hollywood studio system is going to continue to react and put out films like King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, or The Mummy, because they think that's what we really want, I, I, I just I, I don't know what to do anymore. And as a result, I refuse to let it get to that point. Um, it's something that is really, really, really deeply upsetting me. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on this topic? <laughs> yeah, I think it, what's interesting here is that you are coming at it from a place where you're willing to say how much this art form means to you. You say it plays such an important role in your life and that it probably wouldn't be the same without film. And that what we have to realize here is that the world exists outside of film Twitter. Like we are, for better or worse, somewhat in a bubble. And when you step out of that bubble and see what happens, I'm not saying people living outside of that can't see these films, but there's going to be a different level of appreciation for someone who's had film uh, make that impact on their life. So in no way am I saying that these films aren't for everybody. They are, but there's just certain elements of them that only a certain amount of the population will be able to respond to. I know there are a lot of people, myself included, who the number one reason we go to the movies is just to be entertained, not really look at everything from a critical perspective. So I understand how that would probably be annoying if you're going to look at every single film for its uh, you know, cinematic qualities and things like that, looking at it deeper than the average audience member may. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I get it. I, You know, when you're reading articles about how this the Hollywood system is thinking about you know, shutting down Rotten Tomatoes because they feel that the critics' ratings are hurting their film's box office. Or it's just like, really? Like, seriously? I, I just, 
I don't understand the war that is being raged right now between critics in the Hollywood system and also critics and audiences. It's something that is completely baffling to me. Yeah, it's a hot discussion. I mean, like, for instance, I know we had Pirates of the Caribbean and Baywatch come out a few weeks ago. They performed lower than expected in the box office, and some people attributed that to critics. I don't necessarily agree with that because I don't think critics make that much of an impact when it comes to films like that. But that being said... Are these films that necessarily need to be screened ahead of time uh, by critics and a review needs to come out? Because it seems like even though they weren't big hits, it doesn't seem to me like they would make such a difference in who's going to see them and who won't. Well, I think Kristen, you know, who sees probably more advanced screenings than all of us could have something to say on that. What's your take on that, Kristen? Um, I find the entire concept to be stupid as shit. Thank you. Um, well, I, well, what you're talking about in terms of marketing, I find that to be pointless because I'm more concerned with the film's actual like content than its marketing because, again, I'm a, a female film watcher, so I don't really care how movies marketed. What I care about is what the movie ends up saying about what it's saying about, which nine times out of ten, the studio system gets wrong. Uh, we don't get, we have more, we have more misses than we have victories. In terms of critics and the studio system, yeah, you don't need to screen the garbage, which we, you, you, we usually know well ahead of time what's crap based on what's not being pre-screened. You know, when, when they didn't pre-screen Point Break for the critics, we all knew it was awful. And the studio knew it too. So, I mean, yeah, if they want to stop screening stuff like Baywatch and Pirates 5, I could be totally fine with that. Those were movies I was never going to pay to go see. Um, But the dichotomy here is that when a movie does well, the critics are your best friends. When a movie does poorly, it's, it's our fault. So you can't really have it both ways. You know, it's it's like the audience member saying, I don't listen to critics' reviews. Oh, but I have a few trusted critics that I'll, I'll decide whether I'm going to go see something. Yeah. You can't really have it back and forth without kind of screwing up the whole system. But again, this is not something that Hollywood is new at. You know, it's not like it was in the 40s and the 50s where critics were very closely aligned with the studios and invited out to hobnob even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Critics were getting far more opportunities to interact on film sets and have access to the celebrities of a movie because we were considered essential. Unfortunately, I think the rise of online writing with so many people being able to comment on a blog about whether they like a movie or not has really watered down the need for actual professionals in the industry. It's why so many of us don't get paid for our work or don't have staff positions Mm -hmm. because... There's the assumption by the studios is that everybody is a hack. Everybody can write. Everybody can talk about how shitty you know a certain movie is, and they assume that that translates into loss at the box office. When that's far from the case, there are countless reasons why. You they, very easily you can pinpoint why certain movies fail. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I mean, isn't that what word of mouth is at the end of the day? Whether it's coming from a critic or a quote unquote hack, um, because if everybody's a critic you know, and everybody can go on the internet and write, then that is your audience. Am I right? I would assume so, yes. But your audience could also be uh, very niche because you look at individual critics from time to time. I know that there are certain people I like to read over others. And yes, the audience could be considered all the internet, but you really have to go look at that certain area of who's listening to you and who agrees, who doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day here, um, I don't know, maybe there should just be a, you know, there is a reason why Rotten Tomatoes only allows certain people to post reviews on their website. You know what I mean? Um, It's not literally everybody. And so that's what IMDb was for. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, at the end of the day here, um, I know this is not going to get solved right here and now. I just wanted to vent about this because I've seen so many articles over the last week or so and... Uh, I, I just, you know, like I was saying, I, I refuse to accept that this that the industry is changing in such a way where um, I'm going to just roll over and let it happen. I, I refuse to, you know, give in to this mentality and I refuse to make it so that critics' voices are suppressed 
I will not let that happen. You know what, though, Matt? Mm. In good news for the movie that you liked, It Comes at Night made over $2 million on Friday alone. On a $5 million budget, I know. I know. So who's laughing now, right? There you go. I mean, look, this isn't a movie that everybody's interested in, apparently, but the fact that it does well enough like that should give you some hope for what could happen in the future. I mean, this and The Witch get released on uh, wide releases, and look how they do. Yeah, but I mean, also, uh, to make a comparison here, um, the movie you saw, I I didn't get a chance to see, Paris Can Wait. That was probably made for something less than $5 million, I'm sure, right? It was probably in that same ballpark. But yet that film um, does not probably make that kind of money even. It probably only makes like, I don't know, maybe $900,000 over the course of a weekend. Yeah, I haven't checked the box office for that. But that is but that is definitely due to uh, marketing um, and also I would niche. totally disagree, but okay. Well, I, I mean, I don't see that film getting promoted wait, wait, anywhere. Wait, wait, You don't see promo- I. I I guess it depends on what channels you're seeing. Like some of the channels I watch, uh, MSNBC, CNN, channels like that, the news stations. Exactly. Catering to 60-year-old people who live at home. Well, and, and, they're, and they're barely going to go out to the movies. And if oh, they no. do, they're a very, Wait, very small audience. you think they audience. barely go out to the movies? Matt, that's the core demographic. No, I know, but they're not enough to make up a tremendous amount of box office results, though. Because the, the assumption is, as a female, first-time female director... Studio has no faith in, in that. Yeah, and Studio had no faith in that movie. It's not playing. It's not playing in my theaters at all in my town. It's playing at the Art House Theater, which it's is an hour not, away. It's also from not me. really good. Here's Sony Pictures Classic. The film has made 1.8 million. Yeah. Yeah. And the widest release is 176 theaters nationwide. Yeah. Let's also remember, 56% Rotten Tomatoes is also not the greatest. Thing it in the doesn't world matter if it was small, made. Yeah. It it matters a li- it matters a little bit. There is an inverse. Not to this. for that audience. You don't think so? I do not at all. I see how it plays in my art house theater. Anytime there's a new title, regardless of what it is on Rotten Tomatoes or what the write up is, people go see it if they think it's entertaining. And especially when it has like Alec Baldwin and good looking food, people flock. Well, to maybe this. it is a matter of geography. I mean, I'm over here in New York City and I'm seeing it play in like one out art house theater out here, maybe two, I think, actually. Um, no, I think it was definitely one. Uh, Kristen, yours is an hour away. Michael, it is playing by you, but also two. But, Look at the people you live with in your town. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? I, again, I live on the Philadelphia main line, which is, again, its own sort of bubble. So, Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I want to move on to other meat and potatoes for this week. We have a lot to talk about. We've spent about like 12, 10 minutes or so on this. So um, let's move over to something that New York Times did this week that I found pretty fascinating. The New York Times uh, released a list of the 25 best films of the 20th century uh 21st century so far um the list had uh, a lot of movies on it number one was there will be blood uh, number two was spirited away i'm not gonna read all of them but number three was kind of kind of weird to me was million dollar baby that movie's garbage. i was not it, it, yeah i was not expecting that at all i like it very much but the new york times loves clint eastwood like they've read yeah. everything he's done recently and i mean everything so that did not surprise me to see it there Here's one I haven't seen. Uh, number four is called A Touch of Sin. Has anyone seen that? I have not. I know what it is, though. Ah, okay. Number five is The Death of Mr. Lazarescu. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, these are very acclaimed by, like, the art house, uh, you know. Well, it's the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> number six is Yee Yee, which I've seen. Has anyone seen that one? Nope. Okay. Number seven, Inside Out. We've all seen that. Fantastic. Uh, number... Number eight is Boyhood. We've all seen that. Love Number it. Number nine is Summer Hours. Um, has anyone seen that? That's uh, uh, Olivier uh, Olivier Assayas. Uh, I haven't seen Summer Hours, but I like him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And number 10 is The Hurt Locker, which we've all seen that. So um, I'm just really curious right now. Um, since we're talking about critics, you know, I mean, let's look at it on this level. For a minute, I want you guys to not put on your subjective glasses. I want you to put on your objective critical lens glasses. Let me find them. <laughs> of what you think are the best movies of the 21st century so far. To be honest with you, I have a really hard time um, in hindsight arguing um, There Will Be Blood. That, that film is uh, something that, I mean, 
I've seen it revered by fellow filmmakers like Scorsese. I've seen it uh, brought up like countless times in other different articles. And I've seen so many takes on its themes, uh, whether it's about capitalism or if it's about uh, religion, if it's about, you know, obviously sucking uh, the, the blood of the earth, hence, uh, you know, oil, and then also sucking, uh, you know, the blood out of other people's uh, humanity. I mean, there's so much going on in that movie. It is un believable. Um, I, I would have a very, very hard time arguing and disputing that as a modern day quote unquote masterpiece. I mean, it's 10 years in. I think that's pretty fair to say. I've never seen it. So. Oh, Kristen, you've seen it. Okay, well, how about this one? Have you seen Giant, Kristen? No. Oh, God damn it. Maybe one day watch There Will Be Blood. I'm not going to say you have to watch it this weekend. It's a little too long. No, it ain't. It is pretty terrific. I'll get to it eventually. Yeah, one day. One day. Um, Michael? Yeah, I love There Will Be Blood. Uh, it didn't make my 10 list, but I mean, there's so many great films from the last 17 years that obviously not everything could fit in that 10 slot, but I can't argue with anything you just said about that great film. Okay, well, I mean, I always talk about Chicago, which is my favorite of the century. I adore that film just as entertainment and how it sort of reinvents what the movie musical could be. But uh, I also love, like, I think Lincoln is a film that really defines our times in terms of showing, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, just the beauty of how great the political scene can be when it all works the right way. Yeah, I I think in today's day and age, I think Lincoln um, now in the Trump administration is maybe resonating with people a little bit more strongly exactly for those reasons. I am very curious to see, though, over time beyond this administration, how that film will uh, hold up. I'm not sure if it will be, uh, you know, seen in the same light. It opened in 2012, three days after President Obama won re-election. And having seen it, like right after that happened, you could just feel something in the theater where I was seeing it, that people were excited to be continuing this new political or this continuing political climate and see this film that sort of goes back and creates what the office is. Hmm. It was sort of like a communal experience shaped by current events. I have a really good idea, Michael. You just gave me like a really, really great idea. Kristen, I'm going to get to you. I promise here. Um, I'm going to spit out a genre. Okay. I'm going to spit out a genre. And you guys think of a movie that you think is probably the best in that genre since 2000. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Okay. Kristen? Sure. All right. Okay. Genre is Michael? Musical. (laughs) Chicago. Inside Lewin Davis. Fuck me. I wasn't thinking of that as a potential uh, guess. I was actually going to say La La Land. Um, Ew, gross. Gross. You know, as a musical, it works. Um, But, you know, there's other problems with it. Uh, God. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. I I just remembered I had that ranked higher than La La Land. Okay. uh, Moving away from Michael's preference. (laughs) Horror. (sighs) Hmm. Since the since two thousand one, I don't even think there's anything good. The witch. Yeah, the witch is good, but it's not great. See, I know there has been stuff that I like. I'm just trying to come up. Probably the descent. Ooh, that one. That that is a very underrated one. It is. <laughs> very underrated. I'm trying. Uh. We could be here for a while. Gravity. <laughs> Does that no. count? Gravity's nope. not a horror movie. Come on, Michael. You know what a horror movie is. Blood and guts and jump scares. Come on. I'm trying to think if I've seen any. All right, moving on. <laughs> Action. Action. Mad Max Fury Road, hands down. Yeah, probably. I can't think of anything better that would be better. Yeah, I agree with that. Sci-fi. You know what I'm going to say? It's a rival. <laughs> I'd say The Martian. That's a very entertaining movie. And I don't want to say gravity because that's technically not fiction. Right. That's true. Uh, yeah, Rival's pretty great. Okay. Um, quote unquote, I know this can get very um, broad, but drama. Far from heaven. Ooh. Almost famous. Ooh. Oh, man. You guys. Um. I think I'm the one that's going to be here for a long time on this one. Because um, <laughs> there's so many. Twelve years, of, twelve years of slave. Um, 
I don't know. Is that like historical drama? I don't yeah. know. Um, well, I mean, I don't want to get into like subgenres You're here. You're right. That's why I didn't say Lincoln. I just thought of uh, drama overall. Yeah, I almost said Selma. Uh, Selma's so good. Uh, comedy. A Serious Man. Talladega Nights. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is hilarious. <laughs> Nobody talks shit about that movie. That, that movie, movie is really funny. That is a really, really funny movie. Um... Or 21 Jump Street. Throw that out there, too. Yeah, that, that one's good, too. You know what? You put this on, it'll make me laugh every single time. Uh, super bad. It's a very, very, very... God, I don't... You know what? No, I, I got me... I mean, I have to take that back. That's me being a little too subjective, I think. God, comedy's really difficult, you know, because different different laughs for different folks, you know? Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. Sideways. Yeah, that was going to be my second choice. Yeah, that's... Uh, okay, that's an easy that's one. That's wonderful. Uh, romantic film. Brokeback Mountain. Almost famous. <laughs> <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh yeah, that one's good. I'll even throw a, uh, I'll even throw an honorable mention in there for her because that's like interchangeable with me for Eternal Sunshine. Oh my god, I forgot Carol. Yeah, we have a Todd Haynes fan over here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> in case y'all didn't notice. Alrighty. Um, I'm sure there's another genre I didn't mention, but we're going to just keep moving on here. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday... You can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, JD. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father, after all. <laughs> yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on... iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one... Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not kidding? how this works, sir. Hey, no, you, you, no, no, you no. go cry at Midnight Special again, oh, okay? okay? That's what you're I good will. for. I will. You know what? And I'll do it while pummeling you. I'll do both at the same time. How are you going to pummel me? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't buy it. That's just how <laughs> it works. Uh, I wanted to now move on to news of the week. So, first things first. Neil Blomkamp, probably one of the most inconsistent directors working today, <laughs> ever since he created uh, District 9. Uh, he now says that the Alien project he was working on is totally dead, and he is now planning on making the long-awaited sequel to District 9 instead. It, did anybody feel when they saw District 9 um, that District 10 was kind of inevitable? I have very few memories of District 9, and I went and saw it in a theater. <laughs> it's a long time ago. I mean, it's 2009. It's eight years ago, so I, I can't blame you for that. Um, but I just remember distinctly, the, like, the way that movie ended, I remember thinking, oh, they, they got to make another one to this, you know? Um, and we haven't gotten it, uh, which is surprising to me because that film was such a box office success for Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture. Um, I, I mean, I'd be open to it. You know, I'm not going to rule it out. If anything, what do you guys think? I have very few memories of the original. I remember it being fine. I I didn't love it. So if they're making a sequel, I have very few, you know, rare interest in it. Short of I'll probably end up going to see it. Blomkamp hasn't done anything since that has captured my interest. So yeah. Yeah. He's one of several directors that gets keeps getting to make, you know, movies um, that I'm just apathetic towards. Yeah. Michael? Yeah, so I saw District 9 at home, actually. I didn't even catch it in the, the theaters, and I really don't remember a whole ton about it. But it could be an interesting thing to revisit if it's worth going back to. I don't want him to become Ridley Scott going back to Alien and just, you know, really getting nothing out of it. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Everybody's uh, favorite Jake. Set to star and produce in the World War II film called The Lost Airmen. Um, Oscar-winning producer John Lesher is also going to produce the adaptation for Amazon Studios. Uh, what else is this here? It is it is based on a novel written by Seth Meyerowitz. And uh, what else is it about? It tells the incredible stu true story of Arthur Meyerowitz, an American turret gunner whose B-24 bomber was shot down over Vichy, France in 1943. 
While hiding in the French countryside, Meyerowitz befriended Marcel Taliander, uh, the founder of the legendary French resistance group Morhange, who helped shelter a man from the Gestapo through his secret network. After six months of barely evading capture, Meyerowitz escaped through a carefully orchestrated plan that also involved RFW Cleaver, one of the most accomplished British fighter pilots of the war. Is everyone like um, constantly like amazed time and time and time again that that uh, Hollywood just keeps on finding new new material for World War Two? It was a big war. Yeah. Moving on, uh, Steven Spielberg. It's uh, new film, The Papers, which everybody's really excited about. Spielberg clearly has an eye for uh, television stars because he has uh, expanded the cast, which originally included Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. Now the cast includes Everyone. Allison Brie, Carrie Coon, David Cross, Bruce Greenwood, Tracy Letts, Bob Odenkirk, Sarah Paulson, Jesse Plemons, Matthew Reese, Michael Stuhlbarg, Bradley Whitford, and Zach Woods. Holy fucking shit. Ah. Everyone Man. wants to be a part of this. It is going to be the most relevant movie coming out during this horrific administration. This sounds like some sort of follow-up to all the president's men. I cannot wait. I don't like doing this this early, but... No O word. But yes, should... I think we're all thinking the same. Yeah. Yeah. I know I am. I'll just say this. I think the SAG Awards will look at this cast and get very excited. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, you've got stars of Fargo, the Americans, uh, the uh, the Leftovers. I mean, West Wing. This is crazy. It's unbelievable how many people just want to be a part of this. And apparently the script, from what I'm hearing, it's from a first-time writer. Her name is Liz Hanna. And people who have read the script said it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. So this is really going to be something when it opens in December. Yep. Uh, Jame Colat Sarah. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, Annapurna fin- uh, Pictures has hired him to direct a movie called uh, Waka, which is a drama about a 51-day standoff between law enforcement and the branch Davi- uh, Davidians. 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 Thank you. Uh Led by the charismatic but manipulative David Koresh, um, Oscar winner Mark Bowl, who wrote uh, Zero Dark Dirty and The Hurt Locker, and the upcoming Detroit, uh, is co-writing the script with Mark Haynes, who wrote Kubo and the Two Strings. Um, the movie comes on the heels of an event series from the Weinstein Company uh, that um, that tackles the same subject matter and stars Taylor Kitsch. along with Michael Shannon, John Leguizamo, Andrea Riseboro, uh, Shea Wingham. Cameron Mannheim, Julia Garner, Rory Culkin, Paul Sparks, and Melissa Benoist as Chorus's wife. That is such a strange choice for him because he previously directed Orphan, which I think is a fantastic, uh, crazy movie that came out in 2009. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And he also did The Shallows last year, which was really entertaining. So he's really good at like these... Uh, Pieces of trashy but really entertaining popcorn films. This sounds like the makings of a really scummy, exploitative movie that I'm yeah. not going to be keen on because I have a very weird interest in cults. Um, when they make the Jim Jones movie, I will be all over that. Um, but yeah, David Koresh and Waco, if anybody remembers what that was about, that was a horrible, horrible story. They were they burned children alive. So I don't really think that the guy who made Un, uh, Unknown or The Shallows is going to have much there that's not going to be just gross and exploitative. So, I mean, I'm all for showing the life of David Koresh. That was a, a fascinating story. But at the end of the day, oh, my God. I, it's not Blake Lively fighting a shark, people. I just I don't know how that's not going to come off is just just unappealing. <laughs> I would argue, though, that those movies were hampered down by uh, poor scripts, and I do not expect a poor script from Mark Bowl, I, I just, I'm, I'm iffy. I'm iffy. And how he shoots his films and how his films are paced, and um, I, I think the guy's got, you know, some level of talent, but I do think that his films have been definitely watered down by... Yeah, some scripts that are either underdeveloped or like unknown, just completely wonky. So we'll see. 
Um, another one here. Uh, there has been a bidding war that has erupted over Joel Egerton's uh, conversion therapy drama called Boy Erased, which is set to star Lucas Hedges right now. This sounds good. Yeah, it's based on the on the memoir by Gerard Conley. Boy Erased is a provocative drama about a young gay man who is forced to undergo conversion therapy to cure his homosexuality. Conley grew up the son of a Baptist pastor in a small conservative Arcus town before he was outed to his parents at the age of 19. Egerton, who will play the man who runs the conversion program, is producing... You know, good for Hedges, at least, uh, you know, that he's getting uh, life beyond Manchester by the sea. Um, and it's also uh, lined up right now with high buyers such as Netflix, Amazon Focus, Annapurna. Uh, yeah, and those look like um, everybody's trying to jump on the heels of this. Um, did everyone see the gift? Yeah. Yes, and I thought it was very good. I was okay with it till the end. It, that was not a horror movie like they marketed it. Talk about being surprised with the audience. Mm-hmm. It was like a mainstream Michael Hanukkah film. Well, Chris, and I'll agree with you. I was a little underwhelmed by the end. I, th- I think you and I took the end underwhelming differently yeah um it didn't ruin the movie for me but i was definitely i I was i was led to believe it was going to be maybe something a bit less rapey uh, yeah something that was like a little bit more um like it didn't have to go there it never had movies never have to go there but they do yeah yeah, I, I, I just, I thought there was another way. I really did. But everything else leading up to that, though, I thought was great. So uh, what else do we have here? Oh, the movie that Michael hasn't seen, Logan. Uh, the director, James Mangold, is uh, set to do a new film called, uh, actually, it's um, it's a remake. It's called uh, Disorder. It's a remake of the 2015 French film from Sony Escape Artists. And Taylor Sheridan uh, wrote the script, actually. So... That's a good combination, actually. Uh, James Mangold, who's done like a lot of uh, tough guy Western films, uh, including Logan uh, to a certain degree, um, teaming up with Taylor Sheridan, who, you know, after making Sicario, Hell or High Water, Wind Wivers uh, coming out, um, that could be a really good pairing there. Uh, let's see here. Are there any stars attached to a star in this movie? Nope, not yet. So, but that looks like that's uh, coming together. Uh, the original film was directed by Alice uh, Winoker and follows Mateus. Um, I can never say his last name. Shona Arts. Um, Matthias Schoenarts. Thank you. Matthias Schoenarts. Man, Michael, you, you did that very well. <laughs> uh, he's an ex-soldier of PSTD who's hired to protect the wife and child of a wealthy Lebanese businessman. Diane Kruger also had a role in the film. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's other stuff you can read about it online, I'm sure. Uh, it's a fairly recent one, but yep, America's remaking uh, foreign cinema again. <laughs> Although I have to say that Taylor Sheridan, anything that Taylor Sheridan does nowadays, I will instantly be there right now. Until I see Wind River and it possibly maybe sucks. I don't know. Hopefully not. Last bit of news. Everybody's favorite pairing right now in Hollywood. Well, almost everybody's. Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan. Surprise, surprise. They are reuniting for a new film called Wrong Answer for New Regency and Plan B. Uh, it is their fourth collaboration together. Uh, Tai ne- Nehichi Kotes will write the script based on uh, Rachel Aviv's article. Her 2014 piece explored the standardized test cheating scandal at Atlanta public schools through the lens of one middle school. Jordan will play math teacher Domine Lewis, who struggles under the pressure imposed on his students in school to meet unrealistic standardized testing scores as part of the No Child Left Behind project. In order to save their jobs and prevent their school from shutting down, he joined in an effort to cheat on the scores. The scandal led to 11 teachers being convicted on racketeering charges. Y'all had me a Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan, so I'm going. Yep. He certainly likes variety, and he's a very talented filmmaker, so... Yeah, sounds good. Absolutely. Um, Fruitvale Station. Did everybody like it? Yeah. I think it's terrific, and that ending is such a gut punch. Yeah, I cried. Absolutely. That, that was quite the debut. Creed. Do we like it? Creed's the best movie I saw the year it came out. I'm from Philadelphia. That's sacrilege if I were to say no. <laughs> 
Welp, uh, I, if, I wish Will was here right now to comment on my segues. Their third film together, uh, which is stuck in between Creed and this fourth one that we're talking about, is going to be Black Panther. Yay! And there was a trailer for it that released online this week. Uh, it's a teaser trailer. It's our first glimpse of seeing Ryan Coogler's, uh work within the Marvel Universe. Let's take a look at that trailer. Tell me something. What do you know about Wakanda? It's a third world country. Textiles, shepherds, cool outfits, all the front. Explorers have searched for it. Called it El Dorado. They looked for it in South America. But it was in Africa the whole time. I'm the only one who's seen it. And made it out alive. by this because it just simply looks like every other Marvel film in terms of cinematography. If I can't say that about a Star Wars movie, you can't say that about a Marvel movie. I totally can. Uh, I totally... Why can't I? Because you told me I couldn't couldn't be apathetic to a Star Wars trailer. You told me I had to say something about it. Well, I, I, I am saying something about it. I'm saying that the look of this film looks like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, Doctor Strange in terms of the visuals, the color palette, and everything else about it. I'm just going to say, remember the next time when a movie, a Star Wars trailer comes out and I say it has a lot of space in it, you roll your eyes and say, "That's I need to elaborate. Well, maybe you need to elaborate right now. What works for you about this teaser? I was, and I don't care for Marvel at all as a studio. I haven't really cared for anything that they've done. I think that all the movies are comic book movies, but this trailer, Ryan Coogler, Michael B. Jordan's in it, uh, Angela Bassett. I was just so happy to see all my favorite actors in this movie doing God knows what. I don't care what this movie is about. I'm sold. The images, the the use of music in the trailer, which I always say can convey so much. Yeah, music was good. This was the first time a Marvel movie has made me excited for something that's never happened well other than being let down by the visuals because here's the thing i'm always like looking forward to a marvel film visually until i see the trailer generally based upon the uh, directors they get to usually um make the films um they're hiring some really 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 quality talent but I'm telling you, every Marvel film just looks the same. And I'm, and I'm not just saying space. I'm just talking about color palette, um, use of shadows, lighting, um, things like that. You know, I'm getting I'm getting a little technical here, I know. But I'm always hoping that someone's going to come around and do like a Marvel film that is like it can be in the same universe. But that universe doesn't have to look exactly the same. Um and I'm gonna throw a little bit of a curveball at you there, Kristen. And I'm gonna say, and I know, and I know that we have our differences on this movie. Um, I think what Greg Frazier did with Rogue One was vastly different than what we saw with Force Awakens uh, visually. And you you may disagree with me on that, but I think that the cinematography in that film was a little bit different for sure. Um, and that's just something I want to see a little bit more in these Marvel Cinematic Universes. And, I, and and the other thing, too, is I have such a stigma against the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I hate that a lot of these movies don't stand on their own anymore, that they're constantly, constantly, constantly have to be always connected, uh, which is what made Wonder Woman so refreshing to me. You know, so this is just a reminder of that. And I think that's what's got me, like, rolling my eyes a little bit. If Does that make sense? 
sure. Michael, you're silent. Yes, I am because... I told you not to comment on this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said that to both you and Kristen. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm well, kidding. here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to be very honest about it. This is, uh, as I've said before, the superior genre is not necessarily my cup of tea, save for like a Spider-Man 2 or The Incredibles. I saw Wonder Woman last week, and I appreciate that it was a well-made movie, and it was great to watch Gal Gadot do all whatever she was doing as Wonder Woman. It just wasn't really my type of thing, and it's good to have variety like that. If you like something, you like something. If you don't, you don't. Uh, I think Ryan Coogler is a very talented filmmaker, and I may even go out and see this one just to support him and see what he's doing with his own vision. Uh, But from the trailer, just like you've said here, it just looks more like more of Marvel, which disappointed me a little bit because I expected a little different from him. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's it. I have really have nothing against these movies. It's just personal preference. I'm hype as fuck about the cast. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o, Michael B. Jordan, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Chadwick Boseman looks, you know, really, 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 really game for this. I mean, he was the best thing about Civil War for me. I thought he was so charismatic and really, really, really strong as a, as a presence. Talk about charismatic. Have you seen Get On Up? Uh, yeah. Have you? Of course you have. <laughs> And I'm sure Kristen has, maybe? I have, and I hated it. Okay. Chadwick Boseman, though. Decent? Eh? I, I have no memory other than I hated it, and I wrote a crappy review that I think the like cinematographer said I was incorrect on, so... Okay. Moving on. Um, fan questions for this week. Let's answer some fan questions. There's quite a lot to go through, so... Uh, which Oscar-winning performance would you be interested in seeing reprised in a follow-up or sequel? This is from Josh Parham at J.R. Parham on Twitter. That's a really good question. Uh, I'm going to throw my name out there for Lee Chandler. Uh, I, Casey Affleck in Manchester, by the say. I'd love to see like what he's like when he's older or something, you know? It would be very, very sad, I think. But, uh, yeah, I don't know where his life's going to go. Uh, I think I would have to say Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln because the book Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin is so vast it covers most of Lincoln's life and the Steven Spielberg film only covered a few chapters of that book. So I would really like to see... I'm sorry, I gotta cut you off. He gets shot in the head, Michael. No, I didn't say afterward. I had a different period of his life. We just saw sort of toward the end as he was finishing uh, the 13th Amendment. But this is this is but he specifically says follow up sequel, not prequel. Well, if you're gonna go like that, I mean, my answer would still be Daniel Day Lewis, just to see more of that. If you're gonna go totally afterward, though, then I guess I would have to change my answer to Viola Davis and Fences, and see how she copes with raising that family, and the burden that she has on her shoulders that she just carries on through every day. These don't have to be recent, right? No. Okay, well, then I would say Olivia de Havilland in the heiress. Jesus. Ooh, yeah. man. The, considering how that movie ends, I would just love to see where Catherine Sloper goes and how they, they deal with that. And that movie is just amazing. So if you've never seen The Iris, you should watch it. You'll probably wish there was a sequel, but thank God there isn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know what, though? My answer was originally going to be Mary Poppins, but we are getting a sequel to that. Hey. Oh, Ryan McDormand on Twitter, at Ryan McDormand, he is in, he is asking a question that is straight to my heart. Even if you never want to see another cinematic universe again, if you were a Hollywood studio executive, what do you think could make a not-so-stupid cinematic universe? That's an interesting one. I think it's neat if you look past sort of like sci-fi and realize that a cinematic universe can be also based on real-life events and things like that. So I'm thinking more along the lines of maybe like a Hollywood cinematic universe, almost like a Hail Caesar or You Must Remember This podcast, where it follows different Hollywood stories around a certain studio or actor's life for a period of time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I do. I like that. Michael, I'm not going to take offense that you mentioned Karina Longworth's podcast and not mine. Well... All within that same. Oh concept. nope, 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 nope. It's fine. It's fine. You, you've already d- sunk the hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, 
I can't think of one that I would make, but I will say this. Um, a cinematic universe so far that I've enjoyed for two films is uh, the Cloverfield Lane movies. And that's mostly because they have uh, absolutely zero interaction with one another. They're just simply two separate stories taking place within the same world, and there's absolutely no crossover. And as long as they continue to keep it that way, I'm, I'm on board. I don't want to see any characters ever interact with one another from the separate movies or anything like that whatsoever. I just want to see how the world is being impacted by this event, if that makes sense. Well, to go off of that and... and based on kind of what they did in, they tried to do in 1983, I would love a Twilight Zone type of cinematic universe where they maybe adapt oh, wow. episodes. Um, again, they, they tried it in 83 with the movie and that was hobbled by horrific real life events that had nothing to do with the film itself. Um, I just thought that it would be great to see them try to maybe do that again. Or uh, I know they tried with Tales from the Crypt to do another television show and thankfully that's dead and buried. So yeah, that would be interesting to see them try again. Mm. Okay. Uh, Brent Leone at Faker Brent Leone. It's probably like a fake account. Which genre will fade out in the next ten years, and which genre will rise? I don't really think genres come and go unless it's like musical or. I mean, we have a pretty even amount, I think, of most genres. Um, yeah, I think that um, I don't think genres ever go go away either. I think they definitely have high points uh, based upon a film's popularity and success. You know, one could argue, it's like, it, it kind of annoys me if I ever hear somebody last year say, oh my God, La La Land is bringing back the uh, the musical. It's like, the musical didn't well, go away. Well, they said that about the artist too, that the artist about. was going to bring back silent film and it didn't. <laughs> and it, yeah. No. That's what made the artist so great. It was its own when, thing. When they said the musical was going to come back and what they meant by the musical is that they meant the big Hollywood 1950s type of musical that La La Land tried to be but kind of failed at, which was randomly bursting into song and having that be the central conceit of the film, just, you know, wrapping a plot around around music. And we've seen that audiences are into that, but I don't think it's something that they're exactly begging for en masse. I think if the musical comes back, it's usually going to stick to what it is, which is adaptations of popular material. Yeah. I don't think we'll see a lot of original people sitting around crafting original material for a musical, because you also have to create original songs at that point, too, which is, you know, a lot of directors or screenwriters aren't musical composers. (laughs) You know, you need to have a team there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Kristen, this is a question for you and me from Ronnie Castle at Ronnie Howlett three on Twitter. How much of a chance does Logan have to win at least one Oscar? Mm-hmm. I, I I would say wins are over. Uh, nomination would be the, the win. Yeah, I don't see it opinion. winning anything. Um, I would say if it gets nominated, I I don't see it for anything above title, more text. M- makeup. I haven't even seen it, and I think it'll get makeup. I'll tell you right now, right now, this day, if the Oscars were being handed out, it wins makeup. But, I mean, we're still so early in the year, so, I mean... Wasn't Will telling us that he thinks it could get in for visual effects? Yeah, but uh, that's something that, uh, you know, people are gonna... They're not noticeable. That's the thing. Like, I don't think people will know slash remember. Um, I think makeup is honestly its best bet at this point. Um, the, the, the visual effects are very, very well hidden. And I think that's what impressed Will so much, is that he didn't even notice it when he was watching it. Um... Which is impressive in its own right, so. I'll have to take your word for it. Oscar Watch Podcast, at Oscar Watch Pod. How would you design the winner's card so as to prevent a repeat of this year, uh, this year's Best Picture blunder? Big, bold font. As they had been every year up until this one because they changed it for this particular show. You So you wouldn't change it? No, I'm saying it was always the same up until the year that we just had where there was the incident. I would say go back to the way that they had always done it before, which was like white envelopes and black font on there as opposed to the red that uh, they had before. Mm, yeah. Okay. Just if you had a good system going, stay with it. 
Okay, so that will pretty much do it this week for fan questions. We have one last segment here on the podcast in our final 10 minutes here. Uh, we are going to count down our top three worst Pixar movies. Um, and the reason why we're doing this is because the Cars series is heavily regarded as probably the worst Pixar movies by, um, you know, if you survey a bunch of people, those t- typically tend to be near the bottom. Although the last film is getting really good reviews. Right, which is very interesting. Are the reviews out yet? Um, I, I know a couple people that went to the press event last night and said that they had seen the movie. Okay. So they've been they've been saying that they saw the movie and that it was really, really good. By the time people are listening to this, uh, well, maybe not if I get this up uh, same day, but I'm seeing it tomorrow. I'm seeing it Monday, so. I'm seeing it tomorrow as well. Um, I'm hoping. Fingers crossed. Odds of, well, okay, the odds of you seeing it are 50-50. I'm definitely 100% going, so people can ask me whether it's good or not. Actually, I don't think I'm embargoed, so I can. Hey, fuck you, Kristen. <laughs> Way to rub it in my face. I'm just saying, you said one of us, at least, both of us will have seen it, and one of us definitely will. I'm just saying the odds are somebody will have seen it by tomorrow. I feel so belittled right well, now. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. White Man, that you feel belittled. <laughs> I've got problems, too. <laughs> like Lee Chandler. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Guys, he lost his three kids. I mean, come on. Huh? All right. Top three worst Pixar films. Number three. I'll start off. <laughs> Cars 1. <laughs> Cars 1 um, isn't the... I, I just find it boring. Yes. No, I, I agree. Like, the, the, the idea of it um, and how inventive it was from a design perspective... I think is inspired, but I really just don't like the tone by which it goes for. I think it's catered. I think the problem is that it's way too much catered towards children. um, And it doesn't feel like it's necessarily for me where Pixar has had a crossover between appealing to kids and appealing to adults. So for me, it just didn't work, but I could, I could see the appeal with cars one. I like it a lot, but I think it's very different than anything they had done up to that point. Because it's really just a slice-of-life piece of Americana, like small-town living and, you know, going back to your roots. So I get why some people don't like it, uh, but I know there's always been a divide with that one. Well, what about you, Michael, number three? Yeah, so the term worst Pixar movies is really strange for me because I haven't disliked any of their movies. There have been some that I liked a lot less than others. But uh, if you're just ranking them, I would say the least best uh, on number three would be Cars 2, which I think is actually a really fun spy movie. It's just not on that same emotional level as an Up or Finding Nemo. I think it's doing its own clever thing. It just feels like maybe top-tier DreamWorks and not so much Pixar. But I think it's actually a really complex spy story, which Mm. is neat. Mm. Kristen? Um, I will throw out, just as a caveat, the only one I haven't seen is Good Dinosaur. So that will not be on this list because I've never seen it. Um, so Brave. Yeah. Number three. That's number three for you, huh? Brave was number three. Ratatouille was almost number three. And then I saw something that was number two. Um, but Brave, I was so excited about this movie. And it's... I wonder why. It's uh, <laughs> one of those where it's a missed opportunity. If you want a story about a mother and daughter coming together, it really doesn't open up much discussion when you turn one half of your duo into a bear that doesn't speak English. So you really lose what you're aiming for. Um, and yeah. I was I was very bummed by that. But kudos for Brenda Chapman uh, for still winning the Oscar. And uh, I hope she's doing bigger and better things after Pixar kicked her out because you know they're not a boys club but they're a boys club i really wish record ralph would have just won the oscar but that's never here nor there all right number two for me cars two um god i just yeah i'm sorry it, it like i just thought it was i thought it was uh, more unfocused than the first one um really really catered towards children <laughs> you know um, by this point, I started to really see that the marketing material for it was, um, like I said, just really just there to just sell merchandise. And that was like kind of the first time ever that I um, finally like had this idea in my mind that Pixar was making movies for money and not for artistic integrity or to tell a story. 
Movies are always made for money. Uh, I, I hear you on that, but this one was just so blatantly obvious. Like, like I, I, I need my illusions to be kept in check. I don't need those to be shattered down. You know what I mean? So uh, this film, for me, just seemed like it was pointless. I didn't really feel like it was necessary. Um, that is why it is the second um, worst. There's something worse than that, though. <laughs> Michael? Uh, yeah, so my number two. Uh, again, I think this is actually a really funny comedy, just not top tier is Monsters University. Yeah, that's like a really blah movie. That would be my number four, personally. It's enjoyable. I think it's like a really neat tribute to like Animal House or Revenge of the Nerds, you know, those 70s and 80s uh, college movies. And uh, look, I enjoyed seeing those characters again. It just didn't have that same pull that the original did. It's a solid three out of four for me. I mean, I'd see it again, but it just wasn't top Pixar. 22 Jump Street did college better. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> uh, my number two is also Monsters University. Um, this one, I don't even remember. Wow. So it's just, it gets in it gets in at two for not having anything that was worth remembering. I know the basic plot and I know that I saw it, but it is like a complete blank in my mind. I am completely in agreement with you. Um, I do remember liking it, just not yeah, I don't see the weird thing is this. Is I, I remember like it just being just barely passable for me. Um, and you're right. It's not memorable. I don't remember any of the jokes. I don't remember any of the scenes, the moments. And I don't even remember what like, I, you know, you said basic plot. I can't even. Yeah, no, I can't even tell you like the details of that plot. Like it is complete blur to me. Well, what I think was interesting there was it was saying to the. Mike characters, he's in college, he wanted to be uh, the person that scares people. And the movie sort of had this message like, hey, if you think you're destined to do this, maybe there's something that you're even better at that you don't even know about yet. And you get to explore that as you educate yourself. So I think that was a neat concept. Well, good for you. Um, wow. <laughs> number one. Kristen, I really wish you had the frame of reference. It's the good dinosaur. Uh, this film was... I'm jumping on with you here, Matt. That's my number one. Yeah, this film was a mess in pre-production, uh, post-production, and it's a miracle that the film even came out. It didn't do well. Yeah, it didn't do well. It also, um, it just feels, it feels like it's two halves, um, and the quote-unquote, like, emotional core, which is what Pixar always tries to, like, get to nowadays with their movies, um... I felt like it was very contrived and I didn't feel um, its impact as much. Let me put it to you this way, actually. Let me say this. The film did not, quote unquote, make its mark. Eh? Eh? Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. No? Okay. That's a line from the movie, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I totally forgot about that. I was like, what's he talking about? <laughs> mark. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's how little I remember from it. Mm-hmm. It's a sweet little movie. It has amazing visuals. I think we could agree on that. I agree on that. That's the one, one good so thing about it. It's so photorealistic. But it's just, you know, it feels like Pixar doing preschool. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Kristen, I'm really curious to hear your number one. Uh, my number one is Cars 2. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, the first test screening I ever went to was for this movie. So I saw it when it was, unf uh, when it was about... 85% finished. Um, I think the third act was the only thing that was still um, in storyboard. And I was just like, okay, this is horrid. Um, and then I went back and I actually saw the whole movie as is after it had come out. And I said, yep, this is exactly the piece of shit that I saw. Um, I, I find everything about Cars 2 to just be insanely stupid. The first film, which I know is a remake of Doc Hollywood... You know, it's pleasant, but it's always been something marketed towards making toys. This movie just had, was a soulless movie made, meant to, like, look at how cool this toy looks. Look at how cool this one looks. And, okay, that's fine. You want to make a profit, but don't make the movie about the most asinine, stupid, utterly charmless character that I've ever seen. I find Larry the Cable Guy's voice to be like 
nails on a chalkboard. I'm sure the same thing about my voice. So you know what? Each their own. Um, but I find Larry the Cable Guy to be horrifically unfunny. Um, and by the way, yeah, he's not actually like a cable guy named Larry, in case it blew your mind there. <laughs> I, I just find everything about this movie to be unpleasant. And it's, again, the most heartless Pixar movie that I've seen. Um, again, maybe The Good Dinosaur is is less, is more demonic. I don't know, but I just hate it everything about Cars 2. I choose to believe it doesn't exist in the Pixar canon. Damn. Okay. It's a better spy movie than Spectre. I didn't even see Spectre, so I can't comment. Jesus Christ. Alrighty, well, at least we're going out on a high note here. Anything else to touch upon before we leave today? Watch the Tonys? Oh, wait, it'll air by the time this posts, so never mind. Hope you enjoyed the Tonys. (laughs) Kristen? I got nothing. Alrighty. Do you have where they can find you on the internet at least? I am on Twitter at journeys underscore film. And you, Michael? On Twitter at MikeMovie. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you everyone for listening to episode 42 of the Next Best Picture uh, podcast. I almost couldn't get it out that time. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Player FM. You can write us a review on iTunes. We would certainly appreciate your feedback. Believe us, we really, 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 really want to know what we're doing right and really want to know what we're doing wrong. So... Be sure to do that. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you all, you guessed it, next time. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.